Rex, who is continuing his series, Jesus, Architect of My Personality, with his message on unselfishness. So glad that you're here for worship. We're so glad that we can be together. You know, I believe that one's belief in the afterlife, heaven and hell, will affect their attitudes and actions in this world more than any other single thing. I mean, let's be honest. If heaven is for real, there's nothing more important than getting there. And if hell is for real, then there's nothing more important than staying away from that awful place. But I'll go a step further. <laughs> One's belief in heaven or hell will also impact the way you live your life right down here in terms of the way you spend your time. It'll affect your priorities, your values, what you invest in, what you ignore. This belief makes a huge impact in our life. Now, some of you may be shocked to hear that Jesus spoke a lot about the afterlife. But here's what's most surprising to me. I never would have expected this until I read the scriptures carefully. Jesus actually spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. I find that to be a bit surprising. So for the next few minutes, I want us to unpack this very special text that we come to today in Luke's gospel. As we're working our way through the gospel, we come today to Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. Let me read the text for you. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Now, I want to pause there in the story and point out something that it would be a horrible tragedy if you misunderstood this part. This rich man is not in hell because he was rich. And Lazarus is not at Abraham's side, this place of paradise, because he was poor. Please don't misunderstand that. In fact, Abraham, when he was on the earth, was one of the wealthiest men of his day. He was fabulously wealthy. Now, the reason I'm pausing to point this out is that there's a lot of poor teaching around today, and it's so bad that I feel we, we need to address it straight on at times. There's a popular teaching out there that's so wrong that says, if you really love God, you're always going to be healthy and wealthy. And I'll tell you what, 
if you're not healthy and wealthy and all things going well for you, it's probably an indication that you either don't love God and or you just don't have enough faith. Nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus taught that the rain falls on the just and the unjust, and we certainly know that some of the best Christ followers throughout history have been poor, and some of them have been rich. Now, let's acknowledge it. Both poverty and riches carry their own special temptations, don't they? And the Bible mentions some of those, but that's not what gets us to heaven. Let's read on. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Now, it occurs to me, because of numerous conversations I've had with people through the years, that sometimes people, and maybe you're listening to me right now, and this is true of you, that you've had a loved one die, and you really cared about this person, but they did not know Jesus. And so, when you hear the challenge of accepting Christ as your Savior and Lord, and giving your life to Him, you sometimes feel that if I did that, that would be like an indictment to that person I loved who, who was not a believer. Well, I, I want you to notice something about this text, that this rich man who's gone on and is now in this horrible place, his major concern was not even his own comfort. That was an issue. But his major concern was, please send someone back and tell my dear family, I don't want my brothers, I don't want my family coming to an awful place like this. That was the number one concern on his heart. The story goes on. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, I think you've got to admit that is one intriguing, one very sobering story. So before we launch into sort of a discussion of it today and unpack it a bit, it's important for me that you understand I don't enjoy preaching on topics like this. In fact, can we just have a moment of extreme vulnerability and candor right now? There are some topics in the Bible 
that if I never had to preach on them, that would be perfectly fine with me. I get no jollies out of preaching on a subject like hell. It's not like I've been waiting, counting down the weeks and the days. Yeah, we're going to get to Luke 16 and I get to really hit them hard with the topic of hell. (laughs) That's not the way I feel at all. This is not a topic I get any joy or excitement in preaching about. But here's the deal. I don't get to choose, do I? As a preacher, my commission from the Lord is to preach to you the whole counsel of God. When it feels good and when it doesn't. When we like it and when we don't like it so much. Whether it's popular in the culture or not popular at all. It's important to me that you understand that. And by the way, there's some exciting topics coming up. And like next week, for instance, I hope you'll come back for that. There's some really good, positive stuff here. But today, we're dealing with a very sobering topic. R.C. Sproul said, look, your job is to believe and to preach and teach what the Bible says is true, not what you want it to say is true. So it's just important to me that all of you, my brothers and sisters, and if you're kind of here as an explorer today, it's important for me that you understand that. Because the topic of hell has kind of fallen on hard times, you might say. There's a lot of people who try to downplay it or just dismiss it altogether. Did you see that article in Newsweek? Newsweek magazine dated March the 29th. This is just several weeks ago. And it's entitled, Does Hell Exist? Pope Francis says no. A new interview that could change Catholic Church Forever. And according to this article, Pope Francis, in an interview with the atheistic uh, writer Eugenio Scalferi, he said that the pontiff told him, and I quote, those who do not repent and cannot be forgiven disappear. There is no hell. There is the disappearance of sinful souls. End quote. Now, because the quoted statement, is contrary to traditional Catholic teaching, Uh, the Vatican insisted that Scalfari's piece was not an accurate transcription of the Pope's words. And it's possible that it was not. Uh, Let's be honest, with all due respect, the press is notorious for misquoting and taking things out of context. But with that said the Pope has not done a lot to distance himself from the quote or bring clarity. And yet some in the Vatican insist that the argument is nil anyway because the Pope wasn't speaking ex cathedra or from the official chair, which would make it binding for Catholics. But it's not just in Catholic circles that there's a stir about this subject of hell. It's in evangelical circles as well. Rob Bell, for instance, a former evangelical church pastor, challenged the notion of hell some years ago in his book, Love Wins. And he said that belief in hell is something people just cannot reconcile with the love of God. But lest you think this kind of thinking is brand new... Trust me, it's not. There's nothing really new under the sun. It just takes on different faces and forms. 
all the way back in the early 1900s, Harry Emerson Fosdick, a popular preacher in New York City, one of the popular leaders of the modernist movement in America, wrote a book called A Guide to the Understanding of the Bible. I've read that book front and back. I've read it cover to cover. I've read it and scrutinized it. And here's the basic message. We got to get beyond this ancient primitive view of God as a bloodthirsty tyrant who wants to bring wrath and judgment on people. He says, surely we're advanced enough now to see that our views of God must be updated. A loving God, Fosdick says, cannot be a God of judgment or hell. As enlightened people, we must shed these backward ideas. Have you ever heard of Lord Bertrand Russell? I have a number of his books in my library. I've read many of his books. He was a popular philosopher about three, gener three or four generations ago. And Lord Bertrand Russell wrote a book called, I have the book, read the book, Why I'm Not a Christian. And you know what he says? He says that the number one reason he doesn't believe in Jesus is that Jesus believed in hell. That's the number one problem he says he has with Jesus, that Jesus believed in hell. So there's all kinds of people trying to downplay the idea of hell. Now, as a follower of Jesus, as a part of Grace Fellowship, how should you feel about all these things? What should your view be? Well, I hope you've advanced enough in your theological understanding to kind of take this attitude. Bottom line, it doesn't matter what the Pope says or what Rob Bell says or what Harry Emerson Fosdick or Lord Bertrand Russell says or anybody else. What matters is what does Scripture actually teach? Oh, I hope we're all on the same page there. Amen? And Jesus Christ made the claim that he was God and he got in flesh and he proved that by rising from the grave. So I would suggest to you that he is really the only qualified theologian to speak about hell. And not only in his direct statements in the gospel, but in the other statements in scripture that are God-breathed. That's where our view about hell should really come from. Think about this for a moment. Most of what we know about hell comes from the mouth of Jesus. Did you know that? Now, wrap your mind around that. Most of what we know about hell comes from the one who loved people so much that he died an excruciating death on the cross so that we would not have to go there. That's how much God loves you. And our understanding of punishment for sins primarily comes from Jesus. So let me just, before we go any further, and I turn a big corner and begin to kind of talk about how we feel about all this, I, I want to read to you just a few, just a few of the statements from Jesus about hell. Matthew 10, 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Or consider Matthew 13. 
the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25. Again, all these are statements directly from the lips of Jesus. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then John 3. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. But catch this part, my friends. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they, he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. One thing is for sure. If there's no hell, then Calvary was a tragic mistake made by our Heavenly Father. Because if there's no pending punishment, there's absolutely no need for a pardon. And Calvary was an awful mistake. But I hope you know better. What's important today is not how we feel about it, quite frankly, but the important question is what is true? Because truth is not determined by how we feel. Imagine a scenario with me. Let's say that you're standing up on the top of a 70-story building and the wind is in your hair and it's a beautiful day and you look out on an inspiring horizon and you start thinking, you know, I'd really like to fly. I just can't believe that there'd be this great sky here and I'm not meant to fly. I feel like I ought to fly. Now, you've, you've heard about gravity, You've heard about it, you know about that idea, but you begin to think, you know, I'm just not so certain about that. I mean, maybe that's just a superstition, this idea of gravity that kind of grew up through the years. And some people, it's become their truth, but it's not really true. And then you think, no, maybe gravity is just an idea that was dreamed up by people in authority. And it was just kind of foisted on people so that they could control them with the fear of gravity. It just seems so limited. I can't believe there's something like gravity. And then you just kind of think, well, I'm just going to not believe in it. I'm just not going to believe in gravity. And then you look down from 70 stories up at the people walking. They look like little dots down there walking on the ground. You think those poor souls, those poor oppressed people who believe in gravity, if they only knew they could fly like me. And so there you are. You say, I'm going to fly. And so you spread your arms, mind you, not your wings, your arms, you spread your arms and you leap. And for a few euphoric moments, you think, yes, I knew it. I knew gravity wasn't real. I knew I could fly. And for a few euphoric moments, you believe it. But then you become a true believer. And you realize that gravity is real after all. 
You see, it's never to our benefit, dear friends, to dismiss something just because we don't like it or just because it doesn't feel good to us. J. Vernon McGee puts it this way. He says, look, this is God's universe and he's doing things his way. You may think you have a better way, but you don't have a universe. Get your own universe, then we can talk. <laughs> and I think that's a good word. We may not agree, we may not emotionally like it, but it doesn't really matter. Satan is the father of lies, and he loves it when people begin to dismiss the idea of hell and say that it's either not real or it's not really that bad. Here's another passage of scripture that speaks to the reality of hell. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. It says, he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. That's describing an awful experience. And the truth is that there will be numerous kinds of suffering in hell. Not just the obvious physical suffering. That would be enough. But perhaps even worse will be the emotional suffering. All the regrets knowing that you had opportunity after opportunity. And you didn't really have to come here. All the relational regrets that you're cut off and separated eternally from the people that you love. And perhaps worst of all, worst suffering of all, you might say, is the spiritual suffering. Because whatever hell is, it is a place where God is not. Somebody put it like this. For genuine Christians, this earth is the closest to hell they will ever experience. But for non-Christians, this earth is the closest to heaven that they will ever experience. Now, as I've talked to literally scores and scores of people through, this, through the decades about this subject, the biggest single objection I've gotten is, how could a loving God do this? How could a loving God send people to hell? And if your belief is that God actively sends people to hell, then I can understand how you would feel that way. But I want you to think about it like this. This passage and Many of the others that I've read, and I've only hit the tip of the iceberg in Scripture that warn about this awful place, these are not threats, they are warnings. Now, do you know the difference between a threat and a warning? I think most parents do. A warning is given with a loving motive, always, always, always. It's given with a desire, with a motivation to want to help, to want to keep you safe, to want to keep you from the punishment that will ensue. For instance, if you as a loving parent say to your child, look, if you do such and such, here's what's going to happen. These are going to be the consequences. And you tell them that with compassion, with concern, maybe even with a tear in your eye. You're genuine as you can be. If you do this or fail to do this, here's what's going to happen. This is the way the world works. Why are you doing that? Is you, are you threatening them? No. 
you're lovingly giving them a warning because you want them to understand that if they make certain decisions and choices, this is what your life is going to look like. Please understand, friends, when we read about hell in Scripture, we shouldn't see it as a threat. It's a loving warning from God. So go with me here. With that idea of God as a loving parent, as loving father, heavenly father, who wants to warn us about this awful place, just kind of go with me on this. Let's suppose, try to put yourself in, in the shoes. Even if you're not a parent, try to put yourselves in the shoes of a parent as much as you can. Let's suppose that you're a parent, you have a child who's rejected you. It happens. They've not only rejected you, they've rejected your values, your beliefs, everything you stand for. They want nothing to do with those values and beliefs. They want nothing to do with you. And they've made it clear over and over again. This is not just your skewed thinking. You're just not having a pity party or a bad day on this. You're not imagining this. They have made it crystal clear. I reject you. I shun you. I shun your love. I want nothing to do with you. And they've made this clear over and over again. As a parent, here's my question. What do you do? Well, it obviously breaks your heart. But what I'm asking is how do you respond? Well, I'll tell you, I believe somewhere in the back of every parent's heart is this desire to go out and grab that child who's rejected you and say, I'm going to throw you in the trunk, I'm going to bring you back, I'm going to chain you to a pillar in the basement, and you are going to love me. You're going to stay here till you change your mind. We are going to be one big happy family. You are going to love me. But then, that's just a passing thought. (laughs) And then, almost disgusted with yourself, you go, but that's not how it works, is it? You can't force love. That's not how love works. That's not what love does. It has to be voluntary. I like what Peter Kreeft, a wonderful professor and philosopher and Jesus follower, says. He says, look, because God is love, those who do not wish to love God must be allowed not to love him. And those who do not want to be with God must be allowed to be separated from him. The answer then to the question of why would a good God send people to hell is that he doesn't. He will let people choose to reject him through sin, and if they don't want to live in his presence, they don't have to. I hope you understand that point. God doesn't send anyone to hell. But if they choose not to be with God, if they shun his love, God's not going to throw them in the trunk and handcuff them to the pearly gates. C.S. Lewis beautifully put it like this. In the long run, the answer to those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out sin at all costs and give them a fresh start? He did. To forgive them, but they don't ask for forgiveness. To leave them alone, is that what you're asking God to do? Is that your problem? You just want God to leave them alone? He says that's what hell is. 
There are only two kinds of people, he says, in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. It's not God's will that any should go there, friends. But hell is simply a place where people who don't want to spend eternity with him, who've shunned his love, get to do so. So as a loving parent, you know you can't force this, but what would you do? What would you do to try to get your child's attention? Well, maybe one thing you could do would be to write a letter. You could tell them in the letter, I love you. Here's how I feel about you. Oh, I want us to be together. I want us to be reconciled. Here's how it can happen. Hey, listen, here's the great plans and purposes that I have for your life. And you could tell them that in a letter. And that would be a wonderful thing to do, to try to get their attention and and bring them back. What's another thing you could do? Well, you could allow some situations in their life, right, that might get their attention. For instance, even though they've shunned your love, they probably still accept provision. Do they allow you to write them a check? Maybe, maybe not. Well, maybe as a parent, you could say, look, if you're going to live this way, if you're not going to have anything to do with me, that's your choice. But I'm not going to keep supporting this rebellious and hateful lifestyle and so you stop the support and you allow some hardships to develop in their life because of their way they're living and then your hope is that it would kind of get their attention your hope is that they'll wake up and come back home and a, a third thing I suppose you could do is send people right you could find out who some of their friends are and say hey listen I my child he or she they don't want anything to do with me but If you'd be so kind, would you please, I know you guys are friends, would you please go and just tell my son that I love him, I miss him, I'd love to see him back home. Would you please tell my daughter that there's like an empty place in my heart for her? I love her so much, and I just long for the day when we can be friends, be together again. Would you please tell that? And so you try to get their attention and you try to send someone to help. Well, you know what? God has done all of that. He sent a letter, the Bible that tells us of his love for us and how he cares and how he's designed us and all the purposes that he has for us that are wonderful. He has allowed situations in your life, maybe even hardships, to try to get your attention and turn you toward him And he sent people, hasn't he? Even people like me, just to tell you God loves you. And he wants to be reconciled with you. He wants you to come home. So i got to ask you today, friend, honestly, what more can God do? He's come. He's bled. He's died. He's risen. He's warned you. He's warning you right now in this very moment. And I want to tell you today, it will be choice and not chance that will determine your eternal destiny. God loves you so much. 
And today's passage is a loving warning. Don't go there. I've done everything I need to do to keep you from that place. Don't go there. I've shared with you guys, even just recently, that all my growing up years in that little house in Leoma, Tennessee, in the kitchen, my mother had a plaque on the wall with a saying. I can still see it now in my mind's eye so clearly. And the plaque simply read, time is swiftly passing. Where will you spend eternity? And I would like to close today with that very question. In light of all that God has done for you, the letter he's written, the circumstances he's allowed to try to get your attention and turn you toward him, and the people he sent, even people like me or friends of yours who've shared with you, hey, God loves you. In light of all that, where will you spend eternity? In a minute, we're going to pray. But at this point in time, I'd like to invite our prayer team forward and our staff and our ministry leaders. And we're going to have a time of reflective prayer where if you are contemplating that very question Pastor Rex asks us, where will you be spending your eternity? If there's something that you've been struggling with, maybe 